You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father, we thank you for this this morning at the Michigan Camp Meeting, and we we pray for the blessing of your Holy Spirit on all the meetings and all the seminars and all the fellowship. I pray that you would bless our time together and lay your healing hand on me so that my voice doesn't get any worse. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Well, we'll continue where we left off yesterday. I think I mentioned that uh, by the time John wrote his first letter, he was an old man, and he had seen it all, and he was the last survivor of the 12 disciples. And he had lived through some pretty rough years in the life of the early church. And through a lot of religious opposition and Roman persecution. And he seems to be very much aware that times like that would come again for God's people. In Revelation, he calls those times the Great Tribulation. And it's no wonder that Jesus chose John to receive and pass on his message in the book of Revelation. Revelation 1, 1 and 2 says, He, Jesus, made it, that is the things that must soon take place, uh, known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, even to all that he saw. Now, obviously, John loved the ones to whom he wrote his his letter, and his love and concern for the last hour is very, very much apparent all through the letter. So he writes to affirm and encourage. Chapter 1, verse 4, so that our joy may be complete. Chapter 2, verse 1, so that you may not sin. Chapter 2, verse 12, because your sins are forgiven. Chapter 2, verse 13, because you know him who is from the beginning. Also, because you have overcome the evil one. And because you know the Father. And verse 14, because you're strong. <clears throat> 
In chapter 2, verse 26, he says, he warns about those who are trying to deceive you. And then in verse 13 of chapter 5, he writes to assure and give confidence in the future, no matter what it may hold. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so this grandfatherly man takes his little children by the hand, as it were, on a journey of preparation for the mission that's required by the demands of the last hour. So by faith, let's join our hands with John and with each other and see where the journey takes us and why because just at the time he wrote, the church of today is threatened by forces that would destroy it at the very time its clear and courageous witness is much needed, is so much needed Amen. in the world that God so loved. The church of the last hour is facing popular philosophies that threaten its very life and its witness. And that's why we need to be clear about the biblical message and certain about our mission. And before we go any further, we need to observe that this apostle of love does not begin this letter by talking about love. He mentions it briefly four times in chapter 2, but not until chapter 3 does he talk about love more fully. Instead, the apostle of love begins by talking about walking in darkness, walking in the light. He talks about sin. He talks about not practicing the truth, about deceiving ourselves, about confessing sins, about being cleansed of unrighteousness, and about making God a liar. That's what he talks about. Now let's read together chapter 1, beginning with verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, 
while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. How do we hear these five verses in the context of the last hour? <clears throat> and in relation to fulfilling the mission that is required by the last hour. The first thing that John makes very clear is that the message he is communicating does not originate with himself or with any other human being. It was given by the Father and by the Son, and that message and none other is what John heard and what he passes on. He says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. Light illuminates, shows the way, exposes things for what they are, reveals falsehood, but darkness obscures, it hides the truth. And spiritually speaking, people prefer darkness to light. He says in the third chapter, beginning at verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil, he says. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why don't they come to the light? Lest his deeds be exposed. And I think that everybody knows the truth of that. Now, what exactly is the mission demand for the church of the last hour? First of all, it's not to walk in spiritual darkness. Instead, it's to practice the truth, put it into effect that God has revealed in his word. And so to claim fellowship with Jesus while walking in darkness is to deliberately mislead and deceive people. It's hypocrisy. 
pretending to be something that, that one is not. Not just giving lip service to the truth, but to live it. Put it into everyday practice, no matter what the personal consequences might be or cost. Why is that so important? Because such faithful living strengthens the church. That's why. Simple. Chapter 1, verse 7, he says, if, if we walk in the light in the midst of the world's darkness, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So understanding the nature of the church as one body and understanding the mission required by the by the demands of the last hour, could we truly be in fellowship with one another if we're not on the same page when it comes to message and mission? If the members of the body cannot be trusted and depended upon by each other, we're in trouble when it comes to fulfilling our mission. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. What does that mean? If we claim to be his, we are the light of the world. That's amazing. Then he says, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And such works are good only if they are of the light and not of the darkness. Jesus said to the scribes and, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, John 8, 12, the gospel, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. That is to say in spiritual, theological, doctrinal, philosophical, ecclesiastical, cultural or moral darkness. But they will have the light of life, he says, to illuminate, to guide, to show the way, to direct people. After John talks about walking in the light and practicing the truth, as opposed to walking in darkness, and not practicing the truth, he talks about sin. And when you read it and you 
Think about his logic. His logic is relentless because the hypocrisy of claiming to be in fellowship with Jesus while walking in darkness misleads and deceives. And that, my friends, is the worst kind of sinning. And such hypocrisy and deception will not serve the mission that is required by the demands of the last hour. Chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil and is doing the devil's work. Wow, that's pretty serious. In chapter 1, verse 8, he says, If we say we have no sin, what sin? Look at the context. Saying one thing and doing another. Living a lie, walking in spiritual darkness. Not practicing the truth. Remember that his focus is on the church of the last hour. And we would deceive ourselves. And you know, self-deception is the worst kind. And why is that? Because if you deceive yourself, you will not hesitate to deceive others. And you'll convince yourself that you represent truth when you don't. Self-deception begins with not having a sense of the sinfulness of their own natures. This is Ellen White now, from the third volume of Testimonies, page 361. They are far from God, yet they take great satisfaction in their lives when their conduct is abhorred by God. This class will ever be at war with the leadings of the Spirit of God, especially with reproof. And then she says in First Testimonies, page 214, quote, these are perilous times for the church of God. And the greatest danger now is that of self-deception. Individuals professing to believe the truth are blind to their own danger. She also says in the fourth volume of Testimonies, page 88, quote, fearful is the power of self-deception on the human mind. What blindness setting light for darkness and darkness for light. According to John, chapter 1, verse 8, self-deception self ends with the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, that everything is okay with the 
with the church, with the message it preaches, though it contradicts the Bible, he says we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Nothing could be more devastating to the mission of the church of the last hour. So what must that church do then? Confess, repent, experience the forgiveness of a faithful and just God and so be cleansed of all unrighteousness and so be enabled to fulfill the mission that is required by the last hour. You know what repent leads to? Reconciliation, restoration, renewal. And that makes us able to fulfill the mission required by the last hour church. The church entrusted by God with a special mission in that time and has to first deal with the sins that, that hinder it from fulfilling that mission. And uh, because the mission of the church in the last hour does not involve the imposition of God's truth upon others, but the submission of the church to God's truth for the sake of others. And in that is to be found an imitation of Christ that comes closest to the real thing. You know, the Bible points to God as his author. According to Ellen White, she says, yet it was written by human hands. And in the varied style of its different books, it presents the characteristics of the several writers, she says. Great controversy. God the author. Yet written by several writers. When it comes to the New Testament, there were eight of them. Matthew. Mark. Luke, John, Paul, Peter, Jude, and James. But the three major contributors were Luke, Paul, and John. He played a major role in the life of the early church. In fact, he was one of the first disciples that was chosen by Jesus. And of all the apostles who served the Lord the longest, he was the one the Lord chose 
Revelation 1.1, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He, Jesus, made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus. You know, you remember that God wrote, or John wrote, the most quoted words in the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall never shall not perish, but have eternal life. And John has been referred to throughout the history of the Christian church as the apostle of love. He wrote more about love than any other New Testament writer. And though he wrote much about God's love for the world and for his church and about believers' love for one another, his major emphasis is on the believer's love for Christ. And in this letter, his focus is not on the world that lies in the power of the evil one, but on God's people, on his church. The more precisely, John's focus is on the church of the last hour, for which he says that it's crucial to be capable of distinguishing, notice, between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, why is, so that, why is that so important? Because it is the church of the last hour that must understand and fulfill the mission that is required by the demands of the last hour. And so the church of today, and I'm speaking of all of Christianity, needs to listen to 1 John. And why do I say that? Because it is the church of the last hour and threatened by forces that would sabotage and subvert it at the very time its clear and courageous witness is most needed in the world that God so loved. It may be disturbing to some folks, but the apostle of love does not begin this letter but by talking about love. Why not? Because love must never be distorted by the church of the last hour so that it subverts its passion for the truth. And when he does talk about love, he makes unambiguous statements 
He's very clear. And the love he talks about is in a far different context than that of the, the fuzzy of idea of love that's popular today. And the Apostle Paul underscores this in 2 Thessalonians 2, starting with verse 9, when he says, The coming of the lawless one, that is the Antichrist, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Instead, John begins, <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 5, with a call to the church of the last hour to practice the truth, to not walk in spiritual darkness, to walk in the light as he is in the light a call to practice the truth that God has revealed in his word. And in his gospel, John quotes Jesus saying, chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light, will have the light of life. He begins with a call to confess and repent and experience the forgiveness of a faithful and just God and, and so be cleansed of all unrighteousness. So the church, entrusted by God with a special mission in that hour must first deal with the sins that hinder it from filling that, fulfilling that mission. So what comes next before he talks about love? a clear exposition as to how the confessing believer can know and be certain that he or she is in a saving relationship with God. In other words, being certain that we are in him. And why is that? so we don't deceive ourselves. And he makes it very clear that there's a specific evidence of the reality of that relationship. Evidence that can be observed by the world. 
Again, the word of God does not leave us in the dark about this crucial matter. Look at chapter 2, beginning with verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Behold, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. I think I read the wrong verses. Let's start it in chapter 2, verse 1. <coughs> My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. And so, so that there's no misunderstanding, so that he cannot be accused of legalism and works righteousness, he prefaces his uncompromising statement of truth by making it absolutely clear that he understands the gospel. He had just said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not just forgive, but to cleanse us. Clean us up from inside. John under, under, underlines the truth that's overlooked in much of contemporary Christianity that sin is not the determining or the ruling force in the believer's life. Have you ever heard it said, oh, we will always be sinners and commit sin? Have you heard that? And it's impossible. We're not perfect. 
as though sin was the ruling force, as though the gospel of grace has no power to trans transform a person's life. If anybody says that to you, you tell them to read 1 John. For John, righteousness is the determining ruling force in the born-again believer's life. And it's here that the Word of God makes it clear that the atmosphere in which the Christian believer lives is that of righteousness, not that of sin. So he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. You see, truth is the antidote for sin. You know, during this COVID epidemic, if you listen to the news and other sources, you heard many different opinions. And as I listened to them, I said, who do I believe? And I was reminded that in his first inaugural address, President Franklin Roosevelt, he said those memorable words he was referring to the depression that had, it was at the height of the depression when he was inaugurated. He said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. The Apostle John made us aware of two major theological issues faced by the last hour church. Two issues that impinge on its understanding of both its message and its mission in that hour. <clears throat> on the one hand, the rejection of the biblical concept of human sin. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then secondly, the rejection of the biblical concept of victory over the power of sin to dominate and control human life, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can I give you a personal testimony? It's part of my life. Back in the 1960s, the latest, the latter part of the 1960s, when my dear wife was influenced by a Seventh-day Adventist family, I was a Lutheran minister And that was a big threat to my ministry. 
And you know, I, I even hate to mention it, but I began to hate, I mean really hate, not only the Adventist family that had influenced her, but all Seventh-day Adventists. And I couldn't stand that hate. And so I, I went to the church and I prostrated myself on the floor just in front of the communion table, face down. And I must have been there at least an hour, maybe more. And I was just groaning within. I couldn't speak. I was groaning and praying to God with that groaning. And I told him, you know, please, God, will you would you remove this hate? How can I continue in ministry, preaching to people every week with this burden of hate in my heart? And a miracle happened. The Holy Spirit spoke to me. And he assured me that my sins are forgiven. And not only that, that the hatred is taken away. And when I got up off the floor and I walked out of the church, it was like walking a foot off the, off the ground. And I started walking back to our house, and all of a sudden, the Spirit spoke to me again, and he said, there's something else you have to do. Can you guess what it was? I had to go to that family that had influenced my wife and confess to them my hatred and ask for their forgiveness. So I drove to their house and I knocked on their door and Dr. Bigford answered. He was a local dentist and he didn't hesitate to invite me in. And when I came in, I, I confessed to him. I asked him to forgive me for my hatred. And his wife, he shook my hand, and his wife gave me a hug. And I was so relieved. And then they asked me to forgive them for all of the misery and conflict that it had caused. And that's how the, the journey into Adventism began for me. Because no Lutheran church would accept a, a pastor whose wife was not, a, not with them, you know. But that's what John is talking about. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness.
I know he does it because he did it for me. Of course, there's more to the story than that, but that's a major part of it. Some of you may not know it, but my dear wife passed away a year ago, May 3rd. And I miss her so, so terribly. I think our time is about over. So, uh, would someone volunteer to close? A meeting with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we're so thankful to you for your words. Uh, we're thankful to you for uh, your forgiveness. Uh, Lord, please guide us and speak to our hearts. Uh, if we do anything wrong, that we may confess it to each other. And uh, if we hurt anyone and we have anything uh, to to say to um, people around us, Father, please forgive us of our sins and uh, be with us. Mm -hmm. And thank you so much for this uh, week here at, uh, in this place, uh, camp meeting. Please be with all of us and may your Holy Spirit will guide us in all truth and understanding. We pray and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.